I'll invite you to take a copy of the scripture and turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And as you turn there, let me just make a few um, pastoral kind of comments about the season we find ourselves in. Last Sunday evening, many of you were here. The room was packed, and we entered into a really, um, I think, profound time of worship. Uh, We organized the evening uh, as kind of a threefold um, purpose. And it was really in honor of, of uh, Darren's love of worship music and gifting in leading worship that we wanted to come alongside his family and, and sing on their behalf and worship on their behalf. Darren didn't have the strength to sing at that point. Two weeks ago when we were planning that event, there was you know some thought that he might be able to play a few songs on the piano, and it didn't turn out that way as cancer progressed really quickly. We also wanted to um, raise some funds to help with um, some of the treatments that were going on and the cost that his family was coming, and we were overwhelmed with the generosity of of this community of faith and others uh, who joined us. It was overwhelming. And thirdly, we wanted to um, intercede, and we wanted to pray bold prayers and asking that the Lord would heal Darren. And so we did that. We entered into passionate worship of Jesus, praising his name. Many of us prayed very bold, specific prayers, asking for healing in the name of Jesus. That, and, and not only just for, for a show, not only just so that Darren would be well, but so that God's glory would put, be put on display. That, that a watching world would see that God is alive and active and powerful and moving among his people and responsive to his people. That was our heart in many ways in those prayers. And four days later, Darren died. Why didn't God answer our prayers? At least in the way that we wanted him to. Frankly, why didn't God heal Darren? And if I could encourage us that that today, situations like this are not the time for trite cliches, and nor is it a time for us to speculate on the reasons that God has for doing the things he does and not doing things he doesn't do. And so I would, I would encourage us to, to be very cautious about that kind of speculation. That was 
some of the dialogue happening in the Bain home this week. And Sherry reminded me of a sermon I preached not too long ago. I love it when she does that. Um, It was beginning of John chapter 7. Maybe you remember this. I didn't. (laughs) Uh, Where Jesus' brothers say to Jesus, um, after Jesus had begun to lose a following and his popularity was diminishing, and Jesus' brothers said to, to Jesus, why don't you go to Jerusalem and do the kind of wonders and miracles that you've been doing around here and do them there in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles when there's a big crowd? Why don't you do that? And Jesus really says, thanks guys, but you actually don't manage me. You don't arrange my schedule and you don't demand of me. He says, I will show my grace and I will show my power, but maybe not in the way that you expect or in the way that you desire. So here's a question. Could, could God have healed Darren? The answer is yes. Right? The answer is yes. God could have reached out his hand and healed them and so that he would be well on the spot. And if that's true, then, then this must be true. That if God is so great that he could have overcome in a moment an aggressive cancer, incurable cancer, If God is that great, then he must also be great enough to have reasons for doing things that we don't quite get. And I don't know if that's helpful for you, but that's helpful for me. That if he's great enough and strong enough and mighty enough and wise enough and glorious enough to reach out and do miraculous things, then he is at the same time, he must be great enough and glorious enough and wise enough to have plans that we don't quite understand. But I would say this, and just this is the, maybe the last comment I'll make. It probably won't be. <laughs> but that God... Just like Jesus kind of said to his brothers, my grace and my power will be put on display, but maybe not quite in the way that you want. Let's acknowledge that God's grace and God's power were put on display this week. As a young man stared death in the face and said, Jesus is enough for me. That's a miracle, right? Today's first Advent. Too often we lump Advent in with Christmas. Advent's not about Christmas necessarily. Advent's a season of waiting. Advent's a season of preparing. Advent's a season of longing. And first Advent... 
is the candle of hope. The candle of hope. Advent's all about waiting for God to act. Expecting God to act. Our technical, technological society, we're not, we're not really good at waiting. The microwave isn't fast enough for me. We have a world that's gone wrong, full of injustice and disease, cruelty and oppression. And like the prophets and like the psalmists, we cry out, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And so often we want the big and the loud and the flashy. And God often acts in the small and in the quiet and in the ordinary. At Christmas, God revealed himself to those who were gazing at stars and who were keeping watch by night. Those who were contemplating, what, what's God doing in an unhurried way? And so as I light the Advent candle of hope, I invite you to have a quiet moment of contemplation of what, what is God doing? How is he working? So I'll light the Advent candle at this time. John chapter 8. Let's hear from Jesus this morning. John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth... And the truth will set you free. They answered him, we, have, we are Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is God's word. It's a passage about freedom and truth. 
and Jesus' word, Jesus' teaching, and our response to it, and what that response to Jesus' teaching and Jesus' word, what effect that has in our lives. Just briefly this morning, I want us to see who is the master, who is the who is the master? Why does submitting to Jesus as master bring freedom? And then thirdly, how you can be set free. So kind of who, why, and how. Who, who is the master? Why does submitting to Jesus as master bring freedom? And how then can you be set free? Jesus is saying is that the only way to freedom is to receive his teaching. To submit to his authority. To actually then obey him. That's really the, the heart of that passage. This is, a, this is a familiar, some familiar lines in this passage. But here we get to see the context of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. Where in he's in this conversation to Jews who had put their faith in him. That was the previous verse in verse 30. But it's a complex conversation because if you read down uh, to the end of the chapter at verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him. So things kind of got off the rails with these people who said that they believed in him. In the midst of that conversation, somehow they were ready to kill him, as Jesus mentions in this passage. And so he is really... um, He's highlighting for us what a genuine response of faith and trust and receiving of Jesus is. As opposed to the kind of belief and the kind of faith that these people had who were ready to kill him. Just a few moments later. And Jesus says that the effect of having him as a master, as having him as the one who, whose teaching you hold to and follow, that the effect of him as the master is one of freedom. He's saying, if you hold to my teaching, as we'll see, which is really a, a, an allowing of, of my teaching to be the authority in your life, is what he's saying. He's saying, if you let my authority be the authority for you, my teaching, my word is your authority, then you will be free. And if I set you free, you'll be free indeed, he says. You'll be really free. We think of freedom as independence, of self-rule. When we celebrate, you know, we don't celebrate Independence Day like our neighbors south of the border do, but our Dominion Day, our Canada Day, is really a celebration where we achieved self-rule as a nation, where we became independent of the authority, at least in, an, in a, in a um, practical sense, of the queen or the king. And so a nation's birthday is really the celebration of independence, is the celebration of their self-rule, but a person becomes a Christian by relinquishing self-rule to Jesus' rule. And so the birthday of a Christian is 
the, the, is, a, is a commemoration of this relinquishing of independence. And so Jesus here is not talking about political freedom. He's talking about a freedom that's more fundamental than that, something that's more personal than that. You see, this world tries to tell us that freedom is having no master but yourself, being your own boss. That the way to freedom is to have no master but yourself. But Jesus here is saying that that's not actually freedom. That freedom isn't the absence of a leader, isn't the absence of a master, but freedom is rather found in having the right master. Having the right one. You see, Jesus would say that self-rule, that independence, is actually a form of slavery. He says, whoever lives in sin, whoever sins, whoever practices sin, which is what he's saying here, whoever is living a life of sin, a practice uh, whose steady um, direction is away from God, in rebellion against God, if that's the trajectory of your life, that you're actually a slave to that trajectory. You're actually a slave to moving in that way. That you can't not do it. That self-rule is slavery. And so he says whoever sins is a slave to sin. And see, we, we know that. See, whatever it is that you live for, fundamentally, whatever it is you live for, we often call that your idol around here. We talk about this often. Whatever it is you live for ultimately ends up controlling you and ruling over you and ultimately abusing you. And so if you're living for career advancement, if the fundamental thing for you is um, the acquisition of wealth or the, the, um, the growing of your, uh, your business or the um, success in your career path, that idol, that thing, that career will end up abusing you and will call for more and more of your allegiance at the expense of other things, right? Whatever it is you're living for, whether it's a relationship, whether it's your family, whatever that thing is that you are fundamentally living for, that, that when two things are in opposition, this thing always wins, that thing will end up abusing you. It will control you. That thing that you can't live without, that source of meaning and purpose and identity for you. And Jesus is really saying, if you live for anything other than me, you are under a tyranny. You are under a slavery. You are under the oppression of sin. And he says, I am the only one master who does really love you. I'm the only one who does love you. This world says, freedom is found in having no boss but yourself. Freedom is found in having no master but yourself. Jesus says, no, 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 freedom is found in having the right master. In having the right master. Self-rule, independence is actually an illusion. We all live for something. And that something ends up controlling us. And abusing us. So then secondly, why does having Jesus as your master bring freedom to you? Why does that bring freedom? Jesus says in verse 35, he says, Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. A slave is in the home. He's talking, of course, about a particular um, cultural expression of slavery. Don't think 
Um, slavery south of the border, uh, you know, of a couple hundred years ago, don't, that's not the cultural institution that Jesus is really talking about here. But he's saying, he's talking into this culture, he's saying a slave is in the house, serving in the house, but he doesn't belong. The slave is always an outsider looking in. But a child, a child in the home, they belong. A child, a son, a daughter knows that they have a permanent place in the family of the father. And so Jesus is saying that I've come as the son to give that same status to you. So to set you free, to have the freedom of assurance. Not to have to earn a place in. See, not to have to wonder where you stand, but that you have a permanent place through the, adop- through the adoption I've come to bring. John chapter 1 says, to all who received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. See, that's what happens in a, at an adoption, right? But this child is now forever ours. He's forever my child. He's got a place. This is his home now. He's not just staying here. She's not just staying here. She belongs. He belongs. And so friends, the freedom that Jesus brings is that you don't just work in God's house, but you're adopted. You don't have to wonder where you stand with God. You have a freedom of assurance of his love. And while your conscience may accuse you, and while you may lay in bed at night, and, and your, the number says your sin will find you out, right? Your sin will find you out. Make no mistake, the Bible says your sin will find you out. And which means that your conscience will accuse you. And the enemy of your soul will remind you of the failures, the mess-ups, the screw-ups that you have done that day, that week, or 10 years ago, and say you will never get over that. What a failure you are. What an evil person you are. What a liar you are. What a coward you are. While your conscience may accuse you, you have the assurance. And you can actually agree and say, yeah, what a failure I am. What a sinner I am. What a mess up I am. What a mess of things I have made. I agree, but I don't look to my standing in the household of God based on my performance, but on the performance of Jesus. And Jesus has overcome for me. Jesus has obeyed for me. Jesus has adopted me as his child. And so I look to the Father not on my own basis, but on the basis of his only Son who lived for me and died for me and rose victorious for me and who is now at the right hand of the Father. And I'm united to him, it says. And so my place is at the right hand of the power of of acceptance of God the Father, right, united with Jesus. And so you can say to your conscience, yes, you're right. I am a failure. I am a mess up. I don't have it all together, but I don't have to because he does. So we have the freedom of assurance. We have the freedom from our past. Freedom from our past. You see, slavery, it says you will know the truth, right? You'll know the truth. Who's the truth? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. John said in John chapter 1, that's John 14. John chapter 1 says, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only one sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the truth. The truth is the way to freedom. Slavery thrives on half-truths, 
on lies, on evasions, on cover-ups. But truth is the way to freedom, and Jesus is the truth. You see, Jesus, as the Father's one and only special Son, begotten Son, is in a position to set people free by sharing with them His status as children of the Father. And when you receive adoption as a child of God the Father, you are free to know that you belong. That you belong. You're not an outsider. You don't have to earn your way in. So how can you be set free? How can you be set free to have that freedom of assurance? It says, if you hold to my teaching, another translation, if you abide in my word, then you're my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, this world tells us that freedom is doing what you want. Freedom is being able to do whatever you want to do. Is that how you define freedom? Freedom is being able to do whatever you want. Jesus says freedom is being able to do what you were meant to do. And there's a big difference. This world says freedom is, being, is the ability to do whatever you want to do. Jesus says freedom is found in doing what you were meant to do, what you were created to do. You see, doing what you want to do doesn't lead to freedom. I don't even know what I want to do most of the time. I don't know about you. I have so many of these desires down in my heart that are kind of conflicting. Like, for example... I have the desire to lose a few pounds. I want to be relatively fit. I want to feel well, feel in shape. I feel better that way. So I have that desire. I also have the desire to eat chocolate. Halloween candy that's been sitting on the counter for a month. And butter. Pasta. Fried chicken. Steak. Pizza. Like I, I could go on, right? I, I like food. I want to eat food. I want to eat t- food that tastes really good. And so I hope you can see those desires are butting up against each other. I want to be a person of integrity, a person of truth. And I also want to save face at times. And I feel like lying is very practical. I want to be a person who excels at my job. And I want to be a person who excels at my parenting. And sometimes those things are in conflict. We have all of these desires in us. And they're all mixed up. And many of them are competing and conflicting. And you say, well, then just follow your deepest desires. Follow what you really want. Well, I don't know what that is. Do you? My desires are constantly having these head-on collisions. I don't know what my deepest desires are. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my teaching, if you abide if you, in my word, if you stay in my word, then you'll know the truth. 
If you know the truth, if you know what you were designed for, if you know the vision I had for you when I made you, if you know what you were designed for, that will lead to freedom. It may seem practical to tell a lie, but I'm designed to tell the truth. See, I often say, right, God's commands are not meant to make us bored and to make us miserable. God's, God's commands for us, where God's instructions for us, were not meant to make our lives miserable, not, to make, not meant to be a, a cold duty that is drudgery. But God, as our creator, knows us and knows where flourishing is found, knows where human flourishing is found, knows the path to the greatest joy. And so it's in the, the ways of his commands, it's in the ways of his instructions that true joy and pure joy is found. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you'll find freedom. If you hold there, if you abide in it, the older translations will say. Which talks about a long pursuit. Eugene Peterson has a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Discipline is the pathway to freedom. We don't like to hear that, especially in our culture. But discipline, the pathway to freedom is found on the road of discipline and practice. For example, I wish I could speak five languages. I am not free to speak any other language other than English. Some people, I know people who, are, who can speak five languages fluent, and there's, there's a freedom. They are able to do things that I can't do, but they're free to operate in different cultures, in different contexts, in different places. They have a freedom that was the result of much practice and study and learning and experience. I wish I was free to play the piano and it not sound like garbage. Like, Sherry's a beautiful piano player. And she has this freedom to just sit down and make music with these fingers. It's it's mind-boggling. That freedom was gained through hours and hours of lessons and practice and discipline. We're only free to do things through disciplined practice. Truth-telling. You can become free to tell the truth through a disciplined practice of holding to Jesus' teaching to free you to be the kind of person who tells the truth and and then the truth sets you free. Last thing I just want to mention about this is that this is a a test for us. This is is an an evaluative passage, right? He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. That if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. A disciple of Jesus is an apprentice, a learner, a student, a pupil of Jesus. Someone who takes Jesus' word and doesn't run away from it, whatever he says. If we're his disciples, it means we've gotten to the place where no matter what he says in his word to us, in his teaching to us, we won't pick up stones in order to throw at him. We trust him enough to know that the problem must be with us and not with him. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we become vulnerable enough before him that he could ruin your life. He could ruin your life. 
that he has that much say in your life. I was thinking about that this week, and I'm like, one of, I've kind of came to the conclusion that one of my deepest, darkest fears is that God's going to call me to move like outside of the Niagara region. Because I love living here. I love living here. Our family's here. It's beautiful. Like, I love living here. I mean, I could go down south in the winter, but... but and so I was just even thinking, could, God, could God's word come to me and say, I need you to go there. I'm deploying you here, and would I receive that? Would I, or would I kick up against that? You see, we've trusted Jesus when we have taken our one precious, unrepeatable chance at life and happiness, and because we are convinced that it is better off in his hands than in my hands. I know the mess that I've made, and I take that and I ask him to be the master of it. I need your word to make these critical decisions. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is. And this passage is meant for us to examine ourselves. It says, if you hold to my teaching, then you're my disciple. A phrase like that is meant for us to examine and say, am I really a disciple? Am I really holding to his teaching? Am I really abiding in his word? Does he have that much say in my life? Now, I need to be clear. Obedience doesn't make you a Christian. Obedience doesn't make you a Christian. Quacking doesn't make you a duck. But ducks quack. And Christians obey. To be a duck, you need the DNA. To be a Christian, you need the DNA, the nature implanted in you, the life of Christ, the rebirth, the coming with empty hands of faith and saying, I want to receive you, Jesus. But obedience is a way of seeing that you are a Christian. So am I really a disciple? And the invitation for disciples and non-disciples today is simply this, to receive Jesus. To come and allow him as a gentle, gentle master, as a loving father, to come and speak his word and to receive his word and to walk with him in the paths of freedom, in the paths of greatness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would take these simple words and by your spirit, stir in us. Stir in us a longing for you, Jesus, to walk with you. Stir in us a a love for you as we see that you are the one and only master that will not enslave us, but you're the master that adopts us. Father, maybe there's some in this room that are, are thinking of the one issue. It's a one moral issue. Maybe it's intellectual issue that we just won't let go of. And we won't allow your word to, to speak to us authoritatively on Would you give us the gift of, of, a, of a repentance, of a turning back to you and a receiving from you today? Convince us, Lord, that the path of joy, the path of freedom, 
is found in following after Jesus. And that if Jesus sets us free, we will be free indeed. Free to love you and to love others. Free to live the adventure of the life you're calling us to. Father, this teaching seems almost too good to be true. But would you convince us that it is true? In Jesus' name, amen.